Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, we're going to start the podcast this week with a very important question. Very, very important. And that question is, should the Dodgers be disqualified from the 2022 postseason and World Series because they tried to put a position player into pitch with only a five-run lead? which is against the rules. To be fair, it's asking a lot of Dave Roberts and frankly, the umpires to know the the rules. No, I'm back in the blue here. The umps did know the rules. As soon as they tried to pull that move, the umps knew the rules. That's Come tr- on. That's true. But Dave Roberts, I think, got in their heads, right? And said, "I can you please, can you please look into this for us? Right, run it up the run it up the ladder to the to the big man upstairs. The big man upstairs being Rob? Rob Manfred? Right. Do you think he's the one who is fielding all of all of the calls? Uh yes, I do think he is the one fielding all the calls. No, I don't want to talk about this. This is not the important question that I was talking about. I'm just that was wishful thinking, trying to get the Dodgers disqualified from the twenty twenty two postseason because if that were the case, maybe the, the Mets would be the favorite, but right, there's an ulterior motive there. Currently, they're not because the Dodgers are very good. Uh, no, the, the important question we're starting this podcast out with is one that came from a listener in our Slack. This question came from Becca, as many of the good questions that we receive do. Uh, it is, what was the best moment in baseball Twitter history? We've talked around this question on the podcast a couple times. We've brought up a few of our favorites, but I figured it'd be a fun and chaotic way to start this episode, so... That's the mood I'm in. The the kind of question perfectly tailored uh, to us, to this environment, to extremely online people. I'm not online. No. 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 I hire someone to do all my tweets. It's not me. (laughs) (laughs) Tipping Pitches Ghostwriter? Yep. It's you. You do my personal account (laughs) and the Tipping Pitches tweets. It's a long-running bit. Um, I think there are some really obvious ones here. The first one that jumps to mind is the Nick Castellanos deep to left field mid-apology by Tom Brenneman. Yeah. That was, for a long time, the platonic ideal of what baseball Twitter could do. Yeah. And has since become a a very long-lasting, that meme has legs. Um, It obviously got blown up and was chronicled by copypasta Hall of Famer Jen Macramos. Uh, by creating a bot that would respond to people anytime they tweeted deep to left field and tagged that bot. Um, but that, that I don't know, that, that was great, but that feels like too obvious of an answer. It is too obvious of an answer. I mean, the, the tough part with this is I don't remember most things, just generally, uh, generally speaking. <laughs> That was the first one that jumped to mind because it's the perfect kind of amalgamation of absurdity and <laughs> repulsiveness and feels like it it kind of encapsulated the the moment that baseball is in 
right now, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I mean, obviously, we're you know we're talking about the, the Tom Brenneman on air apology for for uttering an, an anti gay slur on uh, on a hot mic, and obviously calling a Nick Castellanos home run in the middle of that apology. And <laughs> I like and, how you're doing like the full context for the deep to left field, as if there's anyone listening to this podcast that doesn't know, but. Thank you, journalist Alex. Well, I I think it's important to just note all the moving parts here, right? right? This was not this was not one kind of isolated moment that that was enacted by by a singular uh, actor, right? There's there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot to unpack there. You can go in so many different directions, but I think what I appreciate about it most is that Castellanos himself has only fed the legend, right? right? of of his home run prowess by proceeding to uh <laughs> swat dingers in other uh, less than ideal scenarios. See, but that doesn't count though because that's that means that that's just that's no longer a moment in Twitter history. That is but that but this the the deep to left field is clearly the moment that set all of those other events in motion. It's like the big bang for right. what Nick Castellanos became. Right, exactly. So I think it's important to note that this really was the the catalyst for for what would come. Right. Uh some other suggestions that I saw in our Slack were when the White Sox memorialized a still living <laughs> Eloy Jimenez. <laughs> With us forever and always, I think was the caption to their tweet about him going out with a torn pectoral muscle. Um, and then this one was one of the ones that immediately came to my head, which was the Carlos Beltran's fake niece burner account after the sign stealing scandal. Uh, and someone who proclaimed themselves to be Carlos Beltran's niece, who turned out not to be Carlos Beltran's niece, uh, said that. They had all this inside knowledge about whether Beltron would be fired by the Mets. And it, it was like a, it only lasted for like 16 hours right. before we realized that it wasn't true. But, but and then there was a real resolution to the Beltron situation with the Mets, which was that they just, they fired him. <laughs> Regardless of what, you know, Carlos Beltron's niece actually did or did not know. Right. Well, that notably really fed the, the notion that the Astros were in fact using buzzers. Right. That was a, there was, yeah. Carlos Beltran's niece had inside knowledge <laughs> that, yes, Jose Altuve actually was wearing a, a buzzer. And that really captivated people for a, a long time. Right. It kind of took a while for that to really get uh, disproven fully. When you think back on that, it's really more of an indictment of us than the fake niece. <laughs> right. That we were, we were so easily fooled and so willing to run with this like locked Twitter account. Yeah. That had no proof that they were Carlos Beltran's niece at all. Um, and then, as we were discussing this before the podcast, you brought up a really great one, which happened just very recently. And that was Bob Nightingale's No One Is Moving As The Two Sides Are Moving Ever So Closer. Yeah. Mid-lockout. As we thought we were going to get a CBA at the 11th hour. And Bob Nightingale tweeted something so cryptic that made no sense to anybody at all and clearly was a typo. but ultimately came out sounding like you know Langston Hughes style peaceful poetry <laughs> short sweet to the point really cuts to the core of humanity no one is moving as the two sides are moving ever so closer the thing about this question is that you can kind of break it down in a couple different ways right so there are moments that happen in the baseball world that are perfectly suited 
to light the conversation on fire on baseball Twitter, right? And then there are the the moments like the Bob Nightingale tweet, which are people in the baseball world who, through no intention of their own, <laughs> created something that would that would resonate and and last for a generation, right? Be the yeah. defining literary moment of of the baseball year. Mm-hmm. I still don't think that that was the greatest moment to be on baseball Twitter, though, because there was a lot of like angst online right. at that time. That's why I wrote two other moments that were, like you said, fit into that category of things that actually happened in baseball. It's two games, two World Series games in back-to-back years. 2017 World Series Game 5 was a wonderful time to be on baseball Twitter because yeah. everyone's heads were exploding. Everybody's brains were melting out of their ears. That was the game that I think finished you know, 13-12 or something insane like that. Um, and there was a ton of home runs. It started with Clayton Kershaw getting knocked out in Houston. We obviously know now that there was some sign stealing going on during that series, but I think that game specifically had more to do with the extremely juiced ball and the extremely short porch in Houston, and it completely broke our brains. And then 2018 World Series Game 3, which was the 18 innings game mm-hmm. between the Red Sox and the Dodgers, there was some real going through it tweets happening yeah. on the timeline. There's nothing specific that I remember, but people having to stay up until 4 a.m. Eastern to cover that game or watch that game. I fortunately was on the West Coast at that time, but still, it was it was pretty late. Yep. <laughs> I left work, listened to the game on the radio, got dinner, <laughs> watched the game on TV at dinner, and then got home, which was about a three-hour process, and there was still like another hour and a half of that game. Yeah, weird baseball is fodder enough for baseball twitter right but weird playoff baseball yeah is just like all bets are off no holds barred any anything goes past uh past midnight once the once the clock strikes 12 (laughs) i kind of wish i was more on baseball twitter for the jose batista home run i was not we obviously didn't have tipping pitches yet then right but I wonder how we would have reacted or how our sort of Twitter circle would have felt in that moment. That was a more of a just a you and me in real life responding to that. Yeah. Not quite a baseball Twitter moment. All right. What else do you have? Those are that's my list. So I mean, you mentioned the the Astros and and their that the twenty seventeen game that broke all of our brains. Mm-hmm. Um I in that same lineage, the slow unraveling of the trash can banging on Twitter was something to behold in part because these were not stories that were coming from major league baseball yeah. that were not even necessarily coming directly from top sources with the league, right. Or, or the, the sports premier journalists. It was largely also two online people who had too much video to to or had too much time to look through videos yeah um i don't know if it's a if it's a banned topic to say the words john boy uh on this podcast (laughs) you may bleep it out i don't know um but but really all of that john boy was on his tipping pitches shit this weekend dude he was yeah (laughs) helping or hurting our seo i don't really know but all of that really played out on Twitter, right? Yeah. And then obviously there was like there was an athletic article that really kind of went in deep uh, and tried to f- f- 
really back up those claims, but that was unlike anything I've I've seen, right? Because it was effectively a fan finding out what would be the defining scandal in the league in the coming years. And I don't think anyone of us could have predicted that coming. Yeah, and then there was the Astros fan afterwards who used the program that listened to the audio to automatically identify yeah. all of the times and all of the instances after it was discovered that the banging was indicative. And yeah, that was... I don't know if that was a good time to be on baseball Twitter, <laughs> right. but it was certainly you would put that in the pantheon of baseball Twitter moments because it proved how weirdly powerful baseball Twitter is yeah. and how, <laughs> and how um, there are certain elements of baseball of baseball Twitter that go beyond what baseball media can do. Yeah. Just because, you know, the old cliche of you watch your team closer than any reporter or any national reporter ever has the time to watch watch your team. And because of that, it was a Yankees fan who ultimately discovered the team that was cheating against the Yankees. Yeah, it was... That was a ridiculous time. I've never gone back and listened to any of our stuff from that time period because I'm, I'm sure we didn't handle it. Like, <laughs> I'm sure we weren't revelatory or anything like that, but um, it was a weird time to be a baseball fan. That's for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. What um, else? Uh, just, a, just a couple other ones. I'm surprised this did not come up on your list because you will remember in 2016, this is in late May, mm-hmm. the, the New York Metropolitans were playing the Los Angeles Dodgers. Mm-hmm. Chase Utley had in, in the playoffs, <laughs> oh, yeah. playoffs the prior year issued a takeout slide that, that many Mets fans and fans around baseball took issue with. Right. Right. So in that game in, in 2016, Noah Syndergaard throws a pitch behind Chase Utley is immediately tossed from the game. <laughs> right. And there's kind of a dust. Immediately no. Immediately no. <laughs> <laughs> the umpire. Immediately no. Yeah. Um, there's a there's a fracas on the field, so mm-hmm. to speak. Right. Syndergaard is not is not uh, happy with with the call. Uh Terry Collins comes out is not happy with the call. And regard some of the worst acting of all time in that clip. Exactly. The when the umpire's of, the umpire comes over and he's like, "Nope, you can't do that." And Cindergard's like, "What? I'm just trying to throw a pitch." Right. He kind of like, he's like, "I can't do what? Throw a pitch?" Throws his hands up like shrugging like, "What?" <laughs> so bad. It was really bad. But it was not until 2 years later that we actually got the full lowdown of of what unfolded on the field, right? Yep. Notably Terry Collins ripping Tom Hallian a new one and forever etching into our minds the phrase our asses are in the jackpot. Yep. This was this really was a wonderful moment. I like I remember exactly where I was when <laughs> when the video came out like I still don't I still never got a valid explanation for why or how this audio leaked or why this umpire was mic'd up right. in this moment. Are umpires always mic'd up? Were they doing a documentary on Tom Hallian's life? <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense because Hallian was the one who was mic'd up because you could only hear as players were approaching him to talk. Nobody else on the field was mic'd up. And you can only hear Collins, who had been arguing with the home plate umpire who tossed him. Hallian was the crew chief. He was in the field. You can only hear Collins. You can only hear Collins once Hallian 
intercepts him. Right. Just steps in front of him. He's like, he says, you take him. <laughs> yeah, our asses are at the jackpot now. This one I do feel like we we effectively chronicled at the time. I remember this. I think so, yeah. Is that all of them? Do you have any more on your list? Um, one other thing that that uh, kind of crossed my mind, and this was years ago, really, at this point, so it's hard for me to actually visualize how exactly baseball Twitter interacted with it, although I know it it blew everything up at the time, and that was the story about Melky Cabrera and his agent uh, creating a fake website in order to cover for his PED usage, right? Just backed into a corner, man just started swinging. <laughs> this is a great segment that we should actually do in the future, is moments that you wish we had baseball Twitter for, yeah. moments throughout baseball history. The 10 moments you wish we could transplant baseball Twitter back to. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, this is back in 2012, um, right? And yeah, baseball Twitter is kind of... In nascent. its in its nascent days, its early days, they were actually coming up, I believe, on the on the ten year anniversary of that moment. So we maybe we'll maybe we'll have to dive deep into that later this year. But it was just the per- perfect example of the hubris of Major League Baseball players, and I don't know, it really stuck with me. It really resonated. I admire Melky Cabrera's commitment to not getting caught, man. <laughs> I particularly love it because he's just like, you know what I have? A Gmail, and I can sign up for a WordPress. Yeah. <laughs> this is how I'm going to do it. <laughs> it was 1 a.m. He was he had not had that much sleep. Yep. He was like, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to try something. I'm going to start a blog. I'm going to start a <laughs> And maybe we can use this. Yep. It might help. All right. Uh, two... Two last ones, real quick. Okay. These are not moments that unfolded on baseball Twitter, but to me, they are uh, defining moments. Okay. The first one is when Brandon McCarthy, the retired pitcher, tweeted, it's ridiculous, but when I start against the Mets, I'm very aware that Jerry Seinfeld's mood is in my hands. (laughs) Sometimes baseball he, players are good at Twitter. He was actually the, the GOAT poster. Yes, he really was. I mean, he still is. He's not playing anymore, so he's not relevant. I don't even know if he's still on Twitter or still still tweeting, but he was the GOAT tweeter yes. while, while still playing. Right. I mean, this is this is a man who ended his career with 69 wins and a 420 ERA. <laughs> like, come on. You don't you don't just become a shit poster, right? If it, <laughs> The, you're born it like you're the Bane born, meme. Exactly. It was always going to end up this way. <laughs> yes. All right. Last moment. And it's one that once again has existed for almost a decade at this point. And it was, uh, it was three words, I guess technically four if you include the handle, um, tweeted by one Ken Rosenthal on March 8, 2013. <laughs> and he replied... To Twitter user, Mr. Sugar Penis, <laughs> with those three fateful words in all caps, read the column. In many ways, this tweet came to define an entire era of media. Yeah. If you want to be really dramatic with it, this tweet is basically the embodiment of pivot to video. Because yeah. people weren't reading the columns. Right. So they were like, oh, maybe we have to make videos now. 
it goes in terms of responsibility for the pivot to video. <laughs> it goes Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> then Mr. Sugar Penis. Right, like this was our right on his heels. This was our uh, collapse of Napster. You yes. know that that heralded the new age of streaming. Mm-hmm. Like like this was we should have known. We really we really should have known. And Ken Rosenthal. Ken Rosenthal is still fighting the good fight for the written word. <laughs> written word got him fired from MLB Network. That's so true. The way I wish I could read this column, like I don't know what the column was. <laughs> we could probably question. find it, right? Possibly, but like the tweet itself is not up. So there's no context. I know. Coward. I, yeah. Coward. And even Rosenthal at this point, I believe, is, is in on the bit. He's, yeah, re- he's, he's referenced he's, it before. Exactly. If only Rob Manfred had been Mr. Sugar Penis and not read the Ken Rosenthal column. <laughs> Still be getting that $2 million a year. <laughs> Do we think he has a burner? Rob Manfred has to have Rob? a burner, right? Ooh, this is an excellent question. Thank you for asking. I think he does not have a burner because he's not native enough to Twitter. Yeah. And the way that at least I've observed his brain to work doesn't seem like it would work on Twitter. Like he definitely has a Facebook, you know, and it's like just pictures of his family. Yeah. And it's it would actually be kind of wholesome if you friended him on Facebook and right. watched it and be like, whoa, Rob's a person. But I think that he probably has people at the MLB commissioner's office either physically printing tweets out to him, emailing right. like them. Trump, like Trump style. Right. Like emailing he just gets them a stack to him. Tweets on his desk. Or basically like synthesizing what's going on on Twitter. Like what's the current on Twitter today? Yeah. And then he has, you know, he reads that while he's getting a car driving him around Manhattan. Cause he seems very insecure about things that people like about discussion points about baseball on Twitter. Yes. It seems like he knows what they are, but doesn't really, you know, live in them. Right. That makes sense. He doesn't necessarily want to engage, but he wants to say he, but he wants to see what people are saying about him and yeah. sometimes uh, somewhat asinine moves that he makes. The real question is, is does Rob Manfred have a Reddit burner account? <laughs> He's getting dragged into discussions I about weird- <laughs> whether Luis Severino actually is like an ace or not. Like, <laughs> I could weirdly see him doing better on Reddit than Twitter. Yeah, well, it certainly uh, encourages open debate spirited debate and as a lawyer a very successful debate lawyer i'm certain rob manfred would thrive in that environment okay um those are some great moments in in baseball twitter history there is no right answer and no wrong answer to this question because everybody's experience on twitter is different um but if you have moments that we left out please feel free to let us know reply to you know reply to us on twitter slack them in our episode discussion channel, email us tipping pitches pod, whatever you want to do. Call in to our voicemail 785-422-5881 and we'll play your favorite moment in baseball Twitter history next week on the pod. We are going to talk about we're going to follow up on last week's story about Gabe Kapler and his national anthem protest. We are going to talk about Ron DeSantis. That's tough. I mean, it's tough. It's here written on my page, but I still don't really know why. But we're going to talk about Rod DeSantis, and then we're going to answer a couple listener questions to round it out this week. Before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. 
before we dive into all of these things, mm-hmm. I'm I'm wondering. I, I'd like to get like to get your perspective. When all right, wait. When, so we're entering the marketplace of ideas here. Is that what we're doing? Exactly. Yes. All right. I'm opening my mind. Was Mike Trout's comment about how every commissioner he knows gets booed? Was that a direct dig at Rob Manfred? Do you think? See, I read it the opposite way. Like, it's a tough job kind of situation. Yeah. Nobody, nobody knows what it takes to be a commissioner. He, he was sort of like... It was a very diplomatic himself. response. Right, exactly. Every commissioner he knows gets booed, good or bad. You know, Adam Silver gets booed. Yeah. Fucking, I'm trying to think of another commissioner that anybody even remotely likes gets booed. <laughs> I don't know. Um, no, I thought... I don't think Mike Trout would be taking swipes at Rob Manfred. Though... If you'll recall, during CBA negotiations, Mike Trout was getting kind of spicy. He was. He was getting a little spicy. He was coming out of his shell a little also, bit. Also, did you see, this is now we're totally down the, the rabbit hole here, but did you see Trout and uh, Michael Lorenzen getting in each other's faces a little bit in the dugout no. during the Angels' recent um, long losing streak that they're on right now? They're almost like, you know, 30 games in a row. Uh, it wasn't really that heated. They were... I think expressing differing opinions, but no yelling, again, market, no pushing. marketplace ideas, <laughs> etc. Right, exactly. Um, Jordan Peterson was off to the side, about to step in and this start the, crying. The real intellectual dark web. Exactly. <laughs> it's Mike Trout. Um, and Joe Madden, speaking of the intellectual dark web, Joe oh, Madden God. stepped in between <laughs> them and it ended it. But I don't think I've ever seen Mike Trout argue with a teammate. Yeah. I don't know, man. He's he's in the midst of the longest offer of his career right now. The Angels have lost 10 straight, I believe. And maybe he's pivoting to Firebrand. It's possible that he took uh, the recent allegations of corruptions <laughs> around Angel Stadium to heart, too. Oh, oh. I thought you were going to say the recent allegation of corruption of, of his fantasy football league. <laughs> That he is well, presiding well, well. over an anarchist state. He's being attacked from all sides, exactly. right? I, his his home field is... Mike Trout reactionary pivot starts now. He said, you know what? <laughs> I hope it rains. You, <laughs> you want more than weather? You got it. <laughs> okay? Let's talk dew point, baby. <laughs> um... I don't even remember how we started talking about this. I I just started. I just brought it up about his commissionership. His commissionership, which again, I'm. I don't even know how he ended up in that position. He doesn't seem like the kind of person who is. He doesn't seem like the kind of person who would be really like aggressive about like wanting to manage yeah. a uh, a league or something like that. But then again, I mean. He is kind of like a numbers like nerd and he's very into like, you know, optimization, right, of himself, his swing, himself as a player, that sort of thing. So it's possible he was just like, look, guys. I think he's just the biggest football fan. Yeah. Based on the fact that he goes to all the Eagles games <laughs> when he can. Um and he 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 might have gotten elected commissioner though, because he he alluded to the fact that he would step down as commissioner and the league will go on. Right. Now there's probably going to be a jockeying for power between Jock Peterson mm-hmm. and Tommy Pham. Right. <laughs> this is where the, the allegiances start to 
appear, right? This is a this is like I when mean, the blacks like, and the reds split, you know, with right. like the Russian Revolution. This is a codified coup, if we're being quite <laughs> honest. This segment already makes no sense to anybody who doesn't give a shit about the Jock Peterson and Tommy Fam thing, which I sort of count myself among <laughs> those people. But anyway, um, Alex, can we talk about your newsletter? Sure. You wrote it. I did. Nice job. Hey, Congratulations. Thanks. Round of applause. <laughs> Woo! You wrote something. First yeah. time in how long? Are we? We're not counting tweets. Nope. Although you don't write very many of those anymore either. That's <laughs> true. No. Unless you're arguing with members of baseball media. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> no, it's been a while. It's been a couple years at least. Felt good to to break out the old pen and paper. Yes. The old microchip and keyboard. And once again, enter the marketplace of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, you wrote a, a newsletter for the Tipping Pitches Patreon newsletter. The newsletter is, is a place where we try stuff out and go a little bit more in depth on ideas that we might talk about on the podcast or we might not have space to talk about on the podcast. It's a place where we can solicit feedback from the listeners and I think test stuff out for the future of the podcast. So it's a great place if you really like this show um, and you are able to sign up for the Patreon and get that newsletter. I think it's a cool supplementary thing to this, to these episodes that we do every week. And the reason I wanted to start by talking about it is because you wrote a really interesting piece, I thought, for the newsletter about the Gabe Kapler protest, but not not only the fact that he sort of backed out of the full extent of protesting the national anthem by not doing it on Memorial Day and standing with his hand over his heart for God bless America during the seventh inning, which as we discussed last week, you know, shares a lot of sentiments with the national anthem. In many ways, it's more direct than the national anthem even is. Um, but also Chris Woodward, the Rangers manager's response to the idea that a manager might be protesting the national anthem. And Chris Woodward shot that down and said that he essentially wanted to stick to sports. Um, and, and what that means, what that means in our current climate of professional sports in America, because even if I think reasonable people could, could look at each other and say, I don't think of myself as a very politically motivated person. And therefore, when I'm watching a baseball game, I don't exactly want political things to be in my face. I think in a vacuum, that conversation could exist amongst 60-something-year-old white guys as they're watching a game together on a Sunday, let's say. However, I think then... When politics does appear in sports, I think we misappropriate the quote-unquote blame. If you don't want that, we misappropriate the blame for that in our culture. Where it's not really like Gabe Kapler sat down and was like, you know what I want to bring to the table? Politics and sports. And it's not like Colin Kaepernick sat down and was like, I want to make sports a political realm. It's the existence of big business and then the crossover from big business directly into politics and i thought it was clever and crushing the way you pointed out that lockheed martin has a gigantic ad in center field in the middle of the rangers game in the same game that chris woodward right after that said that he didn't want politics 
didn't want to have an opinion on politics in sports or in baseball. It's like, well, so then if I asked you about the Lockheed Martin ad, is that on the table? Like, what are your thoughts on them as a company? <laughs> because it's, it's right there. It's on the television broadcast. So who really made the decision to get, quote unquote, political? And I don't know. I just don't think that we, of course, most people are bad faith. Most people are not having that conversation in a vacuum. Most people are like, I don't want politics in my sports because I don't want to have to deal with problems in society. Not because they actually want to have things separated. They just don't want to deal with it in any part of their lives. But I don't know. I feel like certain people get branded as politically radical members of the sports world when I kind of feel like it's it's radically conservative not to talk about these things in sports at this point in our world with the way that capitalism has infiltrated professional sports. Yeah, I mean, there's this notion that you can be apolitical when it comes to conversations around gun violence or LGBTQ representation in the in the sport or anything like that, right? Like that it's possible to keep these issues separate. And that suggests that the the sport is not already a platform for political ideas, maybe more nefarious ones, right? And ones that maybe aren't as in your face. But but when you play a song about how much you love America in the in the seventh inning stretch, right? And ask everyone to stand up and sing along, like that's a that's inherently political. And there's there's this misconception that it's possible to bow out from the conversation, right? Even when that in itself is a political choice, right? The mm-hmm. status quo is political. And so I think there's room to to say, you know, I'm not well versed on this topic. I, you know, I I think it's probably a mistake to expect everyone to come out with a Steve Kerr-esque um, monologue, right, mm-hmm. about gun violence. It'd be nice. <laughs> It'd be nice if we were at this space where yeah. everyone had somewhat developed, coherent uh, ideas on the state of the culture and could could talk about them. But again, I, I, I also don't necessarily want that, right? Like, I'm sure many baseball players have uh, their thoughts. <laughs> And I don't necessarily need to see them all litigated out in the open. But yeah. but I think to pretend that you cannot have these discussions and just avoid the the idea of politics altogether is um it's a myth. That's not possible. I think it's truer than ever in baseball too, because I guess this has always been the case, but it's it's never been so plain how interested in amassing political influence the ownership side is and whether that comes in the form of selling an ad to lockheed martin so that you can keep a good relationship with the united states military which is absurd or whether that comes in the form of the rickets who members of their ownership literally hold political office with the republican party so i don't know i don't know why we have to pretend or how long we're going to pretend like this is not a political realm of society. Baseball is. It is. If you want to get rid of all political influence in baseball, 
it's going to look a lot different. It's going to look like, I don't know, socialist. <laughs> like, if you want to take the money-making, profit-seeking element out of baseball to get rid of politics, then by all means, let's do it. But I don't know. We're not. <laughs> we're decades away from that. So, in the meantime, in the meantime, I honestly find it insulting to to suggest that baseball is not political and therefore you don't need to have an opinion on it. You can say you don't you're not comfortable sharing your opinion on it because you don't feel like a person who either has been affected personally enough by this or knows enough about it to speak intelligently and answer questions about it so that you can, you know, spread important thoughts about gun violence in America. That would be okay, as you said, but it just feels like a cop out. And it's a cop out that feels out of time. Like if you said this in 2010, all right. But like it's 12 years later, you know. We're we're three presidencies removed from Sandy Hook. I don't know. And and for for the manager of the Rangers, the team that is closest to where this incredible tragedy happened, it just it feels even more out of touch, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I won't say I'm surprised kind of by, by not only Woodward's response, but kind of the response across the league, right? Teams kind of took varying approaches with how they were uh, going to address gun violence. Um, and, and Woodward himself really more just feels like an appropriate kind of poster boy for baseball's lack of literacy when it comes to yeah. meeting the moment, right? Actually being able to Woodward read the room. Acted with malice or anything. Uh, no. Like that. I don't no. think he was trying to like hurt people. Right. You could have put things. you could have put any manager in his place and he probably would have said the same thing. Yep. And the ones who don't are the exceptions that prove the rule. Yeah. Steve Kerr's. Yeah, exactly. The Greg Popovich's. Yeah. The Gabe Kapler's, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. The bar's he lower is, in baseball. He is the rule and the exception. Yeah. Like I, I don't know what he is. He's confounding as yeah. a person. Um, anyway, it's a good newsletter. You should go read it by, I don't know, signing up for our, for our newsletter and I'll, I'll send you the old one if you want. <laughs> um, if you are interested in, in hearing more of what Alex had to say, cause I was interested in, in reading it. Um, um, before we move on and talk about Ron DeSantis, which also weirdly ties back to this, this same Polit- politics and sports, politics and sports. Um, <laughs> Really wanted to go as long as possible without ever saying the name Ron DeSantis on this podcast, but I don't think we've ever had to do it. And, you know, today is the day. We had a good run. Um, Before we move on, I'll remind people that uh, similar to the newsletter at the top level of our Patreon, you also get access to live Q&As with us once every other month. That first live Q&A is coming up. It is eight days from when this podcast releases. Tuesday, June fourteenth, eight PM Eastern. Um, it'll be in a Zoom, and everybody can just pop in. We're still working on the format of how this is going to work, but you know, it'll be in a, basically an open forum, a hangout session. And there are some other hangout type things in the works at Tipping Pitches, so though they will likely be related to the Patreon. So if you're interested in doing something like that, a sort of virtual, virtual hangout Q&A type event, then I suggest signing up for the Patreon at patreon.com backslash tipping pitches. Thanks to our new patrons this week. 
Jonathan, Micah, Peter, and Nicholas. Okay, Alex, it's time to talk about Florida politics. <laughs> um, only as it pertains to the Tampa Bay Rays. This past week, Ron DeSantis, uh, in the wake of the Rays organization and social media partnering with the New York Yankees during their series uh, in late May, those two social media accounts, the Yankees and the Rays, they decided to not tweet about the game and instead tweet about some facts about gun violence in America. Not taking a side necessarily, but just sharing plain facts about gun violence and how it happens and why it happens in America versus other countries in the world. And because of this move, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, ever an important member of the culture wars, decided that the Tampa Bay Rays appeal for $35 million of public funds for a new stadium in Florida would be denied. I saw a lot of people being like, this is an accidentally based moment by Ron DeSantis not handing out public buddy for a private corporation to make Stu Sternberg rich. And I guess that's true, but I did think it was sort of a weird precedent. I don't know. What did you, what did you make of this story when you saw it come across? I think it's great to see that defense of free speech is alive and well. As you mentioned, DeSantis vetoed this bill when it came across his desk after the uh, after Pasco County had successfully lobbied for the inclusion of this money that would that would act as both like kind of community sports center uh, for for youth wanting to play baseball and also that would act as a sort of player development site for the Rays. And while DeSantis, it seemed, was displeased by the the tweets, as you mentioned, it was really the donation to the organization Every Town, mm-hmm. which promotes action to combat gun violence. That was what pushed it over the edge for him, right? right. And and he said that you know companies are are free to engage or not engage with whatever discourse they want. But it's inappropriate to subsidize political activism of a private private organization. That's an interesting quote. It's a really interesting quote. <laughs> I'm watching the gears turn in your head for <laughs> which way you want to pick this quote apart. I mean, this may be a belief that he holds dear and true to his mm-hmm. heart. We mm-hmm. shouldn't subsidize companies that take political actions. I wonder how he feels about every other company uh ever <laughs> that just does anything that just acts within the culture of today yeah i don't even think the rays donated that much no like i'm kind of like really this set you off dude but i don't know it just strikes me as incredibly hollow right it was an opportunity for him as you know he's really trying you know potentially vying for a presidential run which to say those words just made me kind of shudder um but you know he's trying to really stake his claim as the corner of the new republican party right and so this is him standing up to big business i get which i thought they were pro big business maybe they're anti this is the thing this is the thing that is um I don't know. I think confusing about the state of as we 
harken back to our conversation from earlier in this episode, confusing about the state of political activism from the organizational side of MLB because it seems like conservative politicians just want to take swipes at the public face of these teams, but not the actual organization themselves. This is not like a crippling blow to the Rays, but it is interesting in that you don't usually see financial repercussions towards sports leagues for public-facing political comments from members of their organization or principal owners of their organization or social media from their organization. Like you usually see a Tucker Carlson segment or you see a tweet from Ted Cruz or you see a fake lawsuit against Major League Baseball by the collected businesses of Atlanta, Georgia, <laughs> the greater Atlanta, Georgia area. Everybody take a shot if you're playing the uh, the tipping pitches woke MLB all-star game drinking game. But I just I think we're in a confusing place around what baseball teams' roles are in all of this, in socio-cultural and socio-political discourse. Because it's not like the Rays are a force for good for the Democratic Party. Right. Or a, or a force for bad for the Republican Party. Or a force for good for the Republican Party at that same at that same token. Like they are apolitical when it comes to party and, and they and all MLB teams because of the way that MLB has positioned itself politically, they are apolitical when it comes to party, but just pro capital. And so whatever is going to help them financially, they choose to do. But then in their public discourse, you find them, you find most teams, I think, choosing to opt for politically correct, or this is like a very charged term, or, or at least politically neutral language. And I don't know, I just find it hard to square teams making donations to things that are quote unquote political activism and how that aligns or doesn't align with the entire purpose of their organization to begin with, which is to make a few people really rich and to largely not ruffle any political feathers in the process. This is like a slight deviation from that, but not really. As you said, it's not very much money. And the $35 million is not going to make or break whether the Rays stay in Tampa Bay or not. Right. And DeSantis has you know, vocally come out as being opposed to using taxpayer money to fund sports projects. Yeah. Which, hey, man. Horseshoe theory. You welcome to welcome to the party. <laughs> and and he said as much in his decision, right? And he probably could have left it there, right? But still used the opportunity to put the raise on blast for making any sort of statement, right? The way he phrased it suggests that if they had instead donated to the NRA, they still would have gotten their money pulled, exactly. right? Because they made a political statement. But that's not true. Right. That's definitely not true. And that's why it's all artifice. Like this, the entire, this doesn't mean anything. <laughs> like I don't, 
it obviously does in that we're talking about it and that the Rays are not getting $35 million from the state of Florida. Like they fucked up that public money bag or whatever. But I don't think this signifies some staunch shift in cultural acceptance of giving public money to baseball teams. Yeah. This seems like a one-off. And it seems like a one-off in an anti-productive way, you know? Right. I mean, it felt mostly more like a convenient excuse for DeSantis to show everyone just how, you know, anti-woke liberal agenda he is, right? He may have been interested in pulling the funding anyway, right? Because he didn't think that the taxpayer money should go to it. And this gave him the perfect out to be able to do that, right? Yeah. He's able to signify his ambitions as the next generation Republican by saying, look, I'm going to stand up to the agenda, to the folks who want us to, to take a side. <laughs> I, I'd love to know where he's getting his campaign money from. Yeah. Right. Probably not any I, organizations. No businesses. No, no businesses. I don't know. Um, all of this to say, to put a bow on this conversation, I think it's in the aggregate, good that the Rays did this and that the Yankees did this. I think it has more positive effect than negative effect, even after you account for, I think, all of the general situational hypocrisy that comes from an organization like the Rays or like the Yankees or like any team in Major League Baseball thinking that they are some force for political good. (laughs) Because, you know, if you take everything into account, Billion-dollar corporations are not forces for political good, and you should not trust them with progressivism. Yeah, this was not the the high-minded political stand that a sports team with it, the amount of power that it wields could actually take if it really wanted to. Yeah. Right? The, as far as political stands go, it's a relatively neutral one, right? Which, I mean, I mean can, can is, is maybe admirable, right? That they use the opportunity to kind of say, hey, it's, this is not a political moment. Like, we, we really just want to kickstart these discussions. There's just so much kickstarting of discussions, though. Right, like, I know. How many discussions do we have going on right now? Yeah. That sports teams wanted to just have a dialogue about. Yeah. All right. Dialogue's right, still going. Yeah, we've we've been we've been doing this for a while. What's uh what do you what do you got? What's on your PowerPoint slides? I mean, it feels even particularly resident as we sit here during Pride Month as all these teams just like change their logos to have the the rainbow flag and then don't do a whole lot else. Yes, it's better than it used to be and it's it's a communal space for members of the LGBTQ plus community to come to the ballpark and feel more accepted than than they ever have, but ultimately it's a pr right move you get this one month yeah one month to feel to feel cool here in in major league baseball and then the rest of the time back to the old grind you exist we changed the bank of america logo to be the rainbow flag in in right field we changed the health insurance company's logo to be <laughs> the pride flag like it's um it's it's political theater i mean and that's what that's what all of this stuff is and and even DeSantis choosing to do this in this moment, it's it's a form of political theater. And I don't know. It feels like we should be we should be past the point in society where like baseball teams are active cogs in political theater, but we're not. Yeah. I'd rather they just be honest about it, you know? That's why, hey, in a sense, I kind of appreciate 
the Lockheed Martin decal on the <laughs> in the Ranger Stadium, right? Because you know where they. My stand. takeaway from this is you're pro Lockheed Martin, <laughs> and you want them to sponsor this podcast, maybe. <laughs> It's like the handshake meme, right? Texas Rangers, Top Gun, yeah, right? Lo- as, Lockheed Martin propaganda. I mean, my Top Gun love is as pro Lockheed Martin as it comes. Yeah, you know, it's a. I saw someone say that the new Top Gun is a two and a half hour commercial for Lockheed Martin. Yeah, guess what? It's the best fucking commercial I ever watched in my life. <laughs> it's like sometimes when you're watching the Super Bowl. I was thinking about this when I came out of the theater. It's like sometimes when you're watching the Super Bowl. And you watch a commercial and you're like, that was a killer commercial. Yeah. And then you think about it and you're like, that was a killer commercial. They did a really good job of trying to take money from (laughs) the entire existence of the the professional marketing and PR structure (laughs) to prop up capitalism did a good job. Right. (laughs) Just don't think about it for too long. (laughs) Just don't think about it for too long. Um, Okay. Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, a couple of questions and we'll get out of here. Okay, Alex, first question comes from Tom. Tom says, here's a real question for the pod. Thank you for submitting a real question and, and not a not a fake question, Tom. What is, considering aesthetics, watchability, affordability, and enjoyment, the true golden age of baseball? Um, this is a hard question. Because while some things have improved about baseball over time, some things have declined. And so I think it depends on where you derive your enjoyment of baseball from. I think if you consider yourself a stat head, the golden age is now. And it's basically like post 2010 to now. And I think that goes the same for if you consider yourself like a if you consider yourself interested in the optimization and technological advancement of baseball, then the golden age is now. The players are obviously better than they ever have been, and they will continue to get better. They will always be better than they were the previous year. That's just how, I don't know, everything works. <laughs> They'll always be, in terms of like skill perfection, better than they better than they were. That doesn't mean that every player is better than every other player from the past. That doesn't mean that the best player now is the best player ever. But in the aggregate, I think players are are getting better at what you would consider to be the good things in the sport of baseball. But I will just ex- I I will take this question to be geared towards the golden age to be a baseball fan, which I think my answer, even though I was not alive <laughs> for most of this time, would be the 1980s and. First half of the 1990s, I guess, pre-strike would be the golden age to be a baseball fan because it was widely available enough via television. The players were interesting. I think there was a lot of charisma associated with players at this in this time period. Really, I'm just like picturing Ricky Henderson. But I think baseball had a more distinct personality back then than it does now. Now, I feel like... We have like such an anodyne product, an optimized product, and that's good for creating better baseball players, but maybe bad for the variation that a sport needs in order for fans to connect to it on multiple levels. And so in the 80s, when they were running more, when there were more mistakes happening, when there were weirder quirks to the game, when guys had different stances and windups and 
the managers were leaving guys in too long or taking guys out too early. Like this sort of thing, I think it's not that I yearn for managers to start doing that or for players to get worse necessarily, but to live in a time, it's sort of a, it's like kind of like a catch 22, but I yearn to live in a time where I didn't know that any of that stuff was going on and I was just enjoying it on its face. Do you know what I mean? Plus the Mets won the World Series in 1996, so. <laughs> It definitely felt like the kind of the wild, wild west of yeah. baseball, baseball's wild, wild west era. Because like you said, players were a little more accessible. The game was a little bit more accessible. But a lot of those channels and venues hadn't been kind of so completely gatekept to the point that there was really just like a machine that was created around access to stars and baseball media, so to speak, right? The the league is really kind of just coming into its own as a broadcast powerhouse and is coming out of a somewhat drug-fueled era, right? And one filled with... About to go into a different drug-fueled era. <laughs> yes, yeah, seriously. <laughs> but yeah, the, the personalities were big enough and... Like MLB PR reps hadn't like started cracking down yes. on like players kind of coming out and speaking about uh, fuck I don't fucking know like how, how dinosaurs exist or whatever <laughs> you know like <laughs> yeah I I also really appreciate the kind of like late fifties slash nineteen sixties of baseball yeah just because of kind of the sheer volume of all-time players that we would get to see then right obviously the sport is really kind of undergoing a shift in the balance between hitters and and pitchers pitching obviously really peaked around the late 1960s with the year of the pitcher bob gibson's fucking like 112 era year that's i was looking at like his stats the other day ridiculous ridiculous thing that happened in baseball like not that long ago yeah be careful you're going to get keith olbermann <laughs> on our case if you don't properly identify every important member of major league baseball in 1968 and it was also i think kind of on an upswing kind of coming out of like world war ii era right and so it was really kind of the moment where it started to reposition itself in like the center yeah. of people's minds not to mention everything else that was going on like outside of ballparks in that time i imagine that must have been a bizarre bizarre time to just try and go to a baseball game and like yeah let it all go you know going straight from the rally to the baseball game right exactly you're like oh um did you see uh what happened to jfk <laughs> Anyway, I have two tickets to the Cardinals game. <laughs> Sitting in the stands talking about this the lone shooter. Right. <laughs> Whether or not it really was one. Yeah, Did what you a hear vibe. about the grassy knoll? Yeah, yeah, what a vibe. What a vibe. Um I think okay, here's the problem with baseball now. Here's the one problem, the only problem with baseball right now, Alex. I think that we're in a weird era of baseball and we've been in it for ten years or so we've been in it the entire time that you and I have been doing this podcast for sure where baseball is very self-conscious baseball people baseball fans the way that we talk about the game general sports fans are self-conscious about the things that make baseball great 
all of the sappiness, all of the tradition, all of the the slow pace of it, the cadence, the the things that you hear people say about the heyday of baseball in the time that you're talking about, like the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, where it's like the soundtrack to the summer. And being at a baseball game is what it feels like to be a kid and, you know, to be outside and to be a little too hot, but you're enjoying it because you're cooling off with a beer. Like all of those corny cliches that just because they're cliches doesn't mean they're not true. And I think that we're at this weird point of baseball where people inside it are always trying to sell it. Like they're acting like nobody likes it anymore. And I just think that you can't be in a golden age of a sport if that's the discourse around the sport constantly is that it's dying because it's too slow and it's boring. Like we used to talk about those things as the reason that people liked baseball It's a different pace. It's no clock. There's no game clock. There's no basket to shoot into. It's completely different than so many other sports that we have in America. And that's what makes it beautiful. And particularly your answer, like the 19 late fifties and sixties, I think that myth-making around baseball, people still believed in it. I don't think... People don't quite believe in baseball as much as they used to. You know? Yeah, I think that like coming out of the steroid era... I mean, you really have... You have the strike in the mid-90s, right? And then you have the steroid era immediately after that. The steroid era, as it was unfolding, really recaptured people's attention, right? And then obviously... It kind of blew up in their faces when they had to ad- admit it, I guess, <laughs> yeah. what was going on in the sport. Uh-huh. But for a while, it was it almost seemed saved, right? It does feel like ever since then, the bubble has been burst just a little bit about the kind of grandness of, of baseball, this sort of higher pedestal that it's on. Yeah. Dare I say this podcast is like created to be oppositional to that line of thinking. <laughs> right. I, somewhere along the way, it just became uncool to like everything, but especially baseball <laughs> in the sports world where, you know, like this, this there's like a running joke with, with the NBA where people are like, Oh my God, this league, it's crazy. Like every, every beginning of July when free agency starts and all these people are signing with a bunch of different teams and everyone's like, Oh my God, this league so crazy. So fun. All that stuff. And now we're sort of seeing like a, a blowback to that a little bit. And it just nobody ever talks about baseball in that way. We're not like Ryan Tapera signed with the Angels, this league. But maybe not you. I don't think. Well, that's what I mean, though. But I don't think it's uncool to like baseball. <laughs> and I kind of feel like we we are turning the tide around a little bit, not just you and me. But but there is a whole wave of like new media style baseball content creation. That's like, no, actually, this is fun and good. And I like this thing. And I count players podcasts among that among that. I count the success of baseball YouTubers amongst that. The the limited success of some baseball podcasts among that. Like, I don't know. I think we're coming out of that era a little bit. If we could get Sports Center to stop acting like nobody likes baseball anymore, that would help, I think. <laughs> Is A-Rod the face of that new movement? No. Is he the one, the chosen one? Nope. To bring balance to the sport? I'm not. Going along with this bit. <laughs> I was trying to be earnest. And here you are being like, it's actually A-Rod that's going to do it. Um, I, that This question took a lot longer than I was expecting to. Yeah, it was a good one. something deep out of me. Yeah. All right, next question. Next and last question. We only have time for one more. 
we did get a question from Dan about baseball books, um, but I did not prepare to answer that question. So we will get to that at some point in the future. Maybe a tipping pitches reading list. But here's a question from a, a different. Oh, we should do a book club. Yeah, we should do a book club. Yeah, <laughs> we can't even. We keep can't up. even do our own. <laughs> we can't even keep up with the book club that we have outside the podcast, Alex. Um, this is this other question. This last question came from a different Dan. Multiple Dans, back to back Dans. Thank you to the Dans who like the Tipping Pitches Dan, podcast. <laughs> right. Um, Dan L asks, "How much do lineups matter? As a fan, should I even care about the lineups?" Short, sweet, to the point. I love it. I think this question comes within the context of the fact that every time a lineup is tweeted out, there's like a thousand people replying to it being like, why was this manager ever given a job? Right. Lurie Garcia batting third. Maybe that one was right. That one's one's right. Yeah. (laughs) But I, I do feel like there is so much discourse around lineup construction and it matters less than people think it does. Yeah. The lineup matters. In the sense that they are the people who are trying to score runs. But on a game-to-game basis, I don't think it has as much effect as it as performance in the aggregate over the 162-game season. Right, exactly. You're lineups, not going to steal like 10 games by creating the best lineup that you can that day. Yeah, lineups matter over the course of the season because they largely dictate who is getting the most plate appearances, right? A guy who's hitting yeah. second is just going to have more bats than the guy who's hitting seventh. So maybe construct your lineup accordingly. But like you said, on a game to game basis, that's the difference of like, that's the difference of like an at bat or two for some players, right? Pete Alonso probably shouldn't hit seventh for the next month. But if you want to hit him seventh once to, to like, you know, shake him out of a funk or something like that, like, sure, by all means, like that's, it's definitely an art, not a science, right? And I right. think that I think there's this conception that because of the kind of analytical revolution in the sport, that it really can become a science, right? So there have been plenty of analyses done about what is the optimal lineup construction look like, right? Do you want a, a speedster, like a high contact speedster at the top? Do you want to put your Best player hitting second instead of third. I like, like second. I I like second too. I like third also. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> I, he's going to hit the first inning regardless. I think. I think another thing that people conflate with lineup construction is is lineup depth, where like your manager might put out a lineup that looks pretty shitty five through nine, one or one day a week or two days a week, or if you're the Orioles, like six days a week, but. I often think that we get too mad at managers for that. It's not the manager's fault that not every player on the roster has a quality backup. <laughs> like That's just a function of there being 30 teams and not being 900 really good baseball players on earth. Yeah. You know, like I, I don't think that we, I don't know, blame GMs enough for this when we see a bad lineup get, get constructed. Um, Bullpen management, on the other hand, <laughs> that can often be attributed to managers. But there's so much that we don't know. Like, is a guy tired one day? Is that the reason that you're seeing in a in a pivotal pivotal rubber match against a division rival, you're seeing Brandon Nimmo sit out or something like that? Is his wrist sore and we don't find out about it until a week later? So much stuff. Like, just don't waste your time getting mad about lineup construction. That is my 
opinion. Now, don't what, go back and check my tweets about it, whether I've ever tweeted about a bad Mets lineup because this definitely happened. Right. When I'm playing MLB The Show or Out of the Park, do I meticulously make sure that every single lineup looks perfect, even when I'm just playing one game? Sure. Sure, I do. Do I hit my pitcher eighth? Because someone once was like, you're the worst player hits eighth. And I was like, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I do. Or, yeah. not, or not anymore because there's, there's no DH. Right Alex there. is pro table setter. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. A little speedster on base guy at the bottom. Second leadoff. Gavin Lux Ever hitting ninth for the Dodgers. Come on. Second leadoff. <laughs> That's the guy who bats least. <laughs> I don't know. It it's just it's all it's all a wash. Just, just, I hope that your team hits a bunch of home runs. Yeah, honestly. I mean, <laughs> hey, neither of us have ever exactly claimed to be oracles when it comes to uh, analytics in baseball. I think we maybe have even made a point over the last few years to shy away from hardcore statistical analysis, even though it's fun to, to think about. Yeah. But again, ultimately, you and I know just as much as the average fan knows when it comes to why a lineup looks the way it does so i oftentimes hey now hey now the average fan uh, maybe the average tipping pitches listener yeah we don't know more than you guys but we know more come on come on <laughs> no than the average fan i mean come on alex you know there's a lot of dumb fans out there yeah you know what and on some days <laughs> i count myself among them Okay, let's end this podcast before you tank all of our credibility. Uh, TippingPitchesPod at gmail.com. Tipping underscore pitches on Twitter. 785-422-5881. Please call in and tell us your favorite moments in the history of baseball Twitter. Tell us if you think that we were completely wrong about lineup construction. It's the only thing that matters, no matter who is in your lineup. Um, Tell us what you think the golden era of baseball was. And then, you know, maybe consider, if you haven't yet, checking out our Patreon. Just going to patreon.com backslash tipping pitches and, and seeing what's there for you, even if you don't end up signing up for it. Special thanks to our A-Rod VIP club members. Five of them get a shout out at the end of every podcast. There are too many to name like we originally thought that we would be able to at the end of every episode, but that's a good thing. Thank you, everyone who has signed up at that tier. Uh, big shouts to Lisa, Grace, Ian, Destin, and Lucas this week. And then lastly, Alex, just a uh, the periodic reminder to people if you're listening to this and there's someone in your life who you think might also get something out of listening to this podcast maybe there's two or three people in your life who you think might enjoy the tipping pitches podcast shoot them a link it's one link it's all you have to do say hey i like this podcast you might too it's cool to like podcasts. It it's is cool. cool to like pod- it's cool to like baseball and it's cool to give people unsolicited podcast suggestions uh, thanks everybody for listening. We will, we will be back next week. Clear your schedules if you're a member of the A Rod VIP Club tier, June 14th, 8 p.m. Eastern. Thanks for listening. I started to cry, which started the whole Hello, everybody. Uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya!